U.S. National Security Advisor sees China attacking Taiwan by 2024. Fuck. They certainly know how to punctuate a sentiment. <laughs> Today, on Indubitably, welcome, by the way, we are going to be talking about something that has been around for decades, I suppose, but in the last month has sort of blown up again, hopefully no pun intended, and that is the issue of Taiwanese independence, which we will examine alongside of the geopolitical implications that come with it, including the elephant in the room, which is the potential of armed conflicts between the United States and China. I'm Josh. I'm Kelly. And away we go. So to give a rough outline for this episode, we're going to break down this conversation into some various questions. First of all, what is Taiwan's current status? Secondly, do the people of Taiwan even want independence? Assuming that they do, what are the arguments for it? What are the arguments against it? What are some potential escalations to this situation that we could see in the near future? And if those escalations come to pass, including military action from China, what should the rest of the world, and in specific the United States, do about it? A whole lot of questions, a whole lot of hypotheticals, but some of those hypotheticals could be becoming reality in the very near future, so it's important to have this discussion. So the first area we should really look at is what is Taiwan's current status. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to evaluate that status, we have to go through a little bit of what brought Taiwan to the state that it is right now. Um, we don't wanna provide a history lesson about all of the international politics at play here, but there are some key points in history that do have a lot of relevance when we're talking about Taiwanese independence. So briefly, um, at the end of the first Sino-Japanese war, the Qing dynasty, which was in China, ceded the territory to Japan after defeat. Um, and then Japan ruled Taiwan from 1895 to 1945, and then World War II happened. We all know that Japan didn't fare so well. And then after the end of the Second World War, they signed the, the territory back over to China without really clarifying which China. Are we going to get tested on all this? I feel like I'm back in my high school history or social studies class. Okay. If we're testing, I should be exempt. <laughs> <laughs> so so basically, but where we're at. So Japan, end of World War II, gives the territory of Taiwan back to China? Right. But the way that it happened and the legal documents that were involved at the time make things pretty fuzzy. And I won't go and like read all of these to you, but I think you can read them online if you'd like. There's the Cairo Declaration, the Potsdam Declaration, and the Japanese Instrument of Surrender that all kind of don't really clarify which version of China we're talking about. So so what is China, Taiwan's current status? Um, th th I think this whole episode is going to be brought to you by, let's call it the word of the day, and that is ambiguous, meaning doubtful or uncertain, especially from obscurity or indistinctness. And we're going to be using that word a lot. And in fact, it's a, it's a term that's officially used to describe um, certain policies towards the, the China-Taiwan situation. But let's, let's actually start with one thing that is not ambiguous. So according to China, 
as stated on multiple occasions to the world, the United Nations, etc., Taiwan is an inseparable part of China's territory since antiquity. You sure that's not ambiguous? You think China might be at all flexible on their stance about <laughs> Taiwan? No, they are very clear on this. Okay, <laughs> so that that part's clear. But to move on to some more confusing bits, uh, first of all, the official names for China and Taiwan. I think we should clarify this. So everybody knows China as China, but its official title is the People's Republic of China or the PRC. Okay, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> yeah, this is so this will be on the test, but I'm going to it's going to be real clear. I'll make it real clear so everybody passes. Okay. Now, so mainland China, uh, Beijing being the capital is the PRC People's Republic of China. Taiwan, in order to make things confusing, is officially the Republic of China. So not the People's Republic, but the Republic of China. And the Republic of China, Taiwan, includes around 166 islands, most notably is Taiwan itself as well as regions of Penghu, Kinmen, and Matsu. And this Republic of China, to get to what is its actual status, is functionally independent. They do have their own elections. They have a fully formed democratic system that's arguably more democratic than we have in the United States, but they're not allowed things like official foreign relations, including trade deals, and the vast majority of the countries around the world do not recognize them as a state, um, including the United States. So I think it's important to note here that the U.S. does have the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. And although this act suggests that the United States might make available defensive articles and services to Taiwan, technically this is an act that's been signed with Beijing or mainland China, not something that's been signed with Taiwan itself. Okay, so Taiwan is sitting in this sort of limbo between independence and then being fully controlled by China. That's, although an ambiguous status, I think that's pretty clear from what we've talked about. And codifying this ambiguous nature is that Taiwan Relations Act of 1979, which is designed in sort of this, like you said, gray area to dissuade Taiwan from a unilateral declaration of independence and also to dissuade mainland China from unilaterally attempting to unify Taiwan with the PRC. It's almost like this ambiguous status then maintaining it is the specific goal of all the actors involved. So despite that codified ambiguity, which is really fun. <laughs> I'm sure it's fun for everybody involved, but Taiwan specifically, it's interesting to look at their actual attitudes and see, do the people of Taiwan and does Taiwan as a state or proto-state or whatever it's considered, does Taiwan itself want independence? And that kind of depends on who you ask in Taiwan, um, because there are a few different ideologies concerning its own status and then how it relates to China. So first, there are competing factions in Taiwan on political parties and coalitions. There's the Pan-Green Coalition, which is led by the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, and that is the current government of, of uh, Taiwan at this time. Is that the uh, pro-environmental party? Yeah, green only means environmental. <laughs> so the Pan-Green Coalition, the DPP, this group is largely pro-independence, at least in principle, but they don't 
actually call for independence on a practical level. They believe that Taiwan is independent already um, in the sense that the president espouses what they call a porcupine strategy, which is a defensive stance that shows that they are capable of a really strong counterattack should anything come their way. A quote from the president is that they are committed to accelerating the development of asymmetric capabilities under the overall defense concept. I think it's important that we're clear here and that is that the Green Party is pro-independence, but isn't making calls to become independent because their stance is that they already are. Also, the actively seeking independence would also provoke China. Mm -hmm. So in essence, it might be that they believe Taiwan is already independent, but actually making that into a firm declaration and making that legal distinction would aggravate China, which is an aggressor when it concerns this dispute. So the other um, faction at um, at a center of this issue in Taiwan is the Pan Blue Coalition. This is spearheaded by the Kuomintang or KMT. So the Pan Blue Coalition was originally associated with Chinese unification, but they do not currently advocate for reunification because they reject the communist stance of the government of mainland China. So they would like to reunify eventually, but when there is no longer communist control over mainland China. So the Green Coalition is generally pro-independence. And the Blue Coalition is principally pro-reunification, but in practicality, both have taken much more moderate stances than that. Right. But I think it's also fair to say that they're ideologically opposed to mainland China's current system. Regardless of their actual stance on reunification or independence, they don't like how China runs itself right now. Mm, And that's fair. Yeah. And so between these two parties, currently Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen is the leader of the DPP, which, as a reminder for the test, is a part of the Pan-Green Coalition. And she won the most recent presidential election with 57% of the vote, as compared to 38% for the KMT uh, and the Pan-Blue Coalition. And I think this would, at face value, suggest that the majority of the population is pro-independence, but it's it's probably important to note a couple of things here. First of all, as we mentioned, even though the Pan-Green Coalition is principally pro-independence, again, practically, they, they are not advocating to seek that independence actively. Um, and also that the election was decided predominantly on other issues, right? The, the, the people of Taiwan are not single issue voters. This is not the only thing that they care about. Um, there were other factors in play that led to the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen winning this election, including some pretty serious allegations of corruption among the KMT. So the question that you asked at the beginning of this, Kelly, do Taiwanese people want independence? Hard to say from recent election results. There's also been a, a number of polls and poll after poll have shown that the vast majority of Taiwanese people like in the 80th percentile favor the status quo. And the status quo, as we mentioned Uh, up top, being the functionally independent state that we discussed earlier, although not officially independent. So does that mean they're not pro-independence? Not necessarily. Could mean that they're scared of Chinese retaliation. Right. I think that there's also a lot of sentiment about what 
the Taiwanese people would prefer if China's aggression wasn't a factor. And if that practically wasn't an actual existential threat to them, there does seem to be significant polling that suggests that the people of Taiwan would actually like independence in a quote unquote perfect world. But I think that they have a really realistic grasp about what the attitudes are on the other side of the strait that mm. really drives some of their polling behavior. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing that that is actually clear here is that the vast majority of Taiwanese people are anti-reunification. I think only 2% of uh, voters in these polls come in as being pro-reunification. So while a minority are willing to come out and explicitly support full independence, they certainly don't seem to want to be brought back into the fold of the PRC or mainland China. Thank you for clarifying that repeatedly. I will (laughs) not remember. And I've been reading about this for a week. Most of that is for myself. (laughs) (laughs) For both of us, for both of us. Um, But since there is some sentiment towards independence and there seem to be some actual justifications for it, I think we should talk about those. So looking at the arguments for independence, let's see what some of the things are that justify Taiwan being its own state. Right, because whether or not they they want independence doesn't necessarily mean that they deserve it. <laughs> what side are you on? <laughs> Neither side. I'm just saying, like, you know, <laughs> you, you can say we want to be independent, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily should be granted it de facto. I don't, I don't know. You said it a very much like, prove to me you deserve to be independent, Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point of the show, right? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, let's actually look at one of the qualifications of statehood that might justify that Taiwan should be an independent state. So one of the legal bases for statehood in the international community was an agreement um, via the Montevideo Convention in 1933, which laid out four criteria for when a state has all of the sufficient qualities to actually be its own independent country rather than just a disputed territory or a subnational territory or things like that. So let's go through those qualifications. The first that is that the area must have a permanent population. And I don't think that there is any dispute over the fact that Taiwan has a permanent population. People absolutely live there and not in like a transient matter. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, the area in question must have a defined territory. And I don't think you get much more defined than an island. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but there are, you know, multiple islands. I think there's some question about uh, if if Taiwan or the Republic of China were to become independent, would that include some of the outlying islands as well? We mentioned earlier that there were it's it's not just the islands of um, Taiwan, but there's also the island regions of Penghu, Kinmen, and Matsu. And so there is there is some question over whether or not those would be included, but. Most certainly, there's a defined territory for the island region of Taiwan and then the island of Taiwan itself. Another factor, which doesn't seem to lay into this debate whatsoever, but technically speaking, these islands are part of the archipelago of the Japanese islands as well. So perhaps there could be a claim for Japan to have ownership at some point, but I don't think they're actively seeking that. So it's probably not an issue. Who knows? The world is bananas right now. So maybe Japan will be like, no, actually. (laughs) It's ours. (laughs) It's ours. Okay. The third criteria for statehood is that the area must have a government. And this is an area 
of Taiwan that is pretty obviously the case in that they have their own free and fair elections. They rank very high on democracy scores with international rating organizations. They have a president. uh, They have structures. They have an order to their society. This is a big strategic question for China because they did allow Taiwan to have these elections. And now when they're allowing Taiwan to be a democracy and have elections, it also gives them the ability to have referendums on things like independence. Mm -hmm. And so if China is allowing Taiwan to have this democratic system and therefore have referendums on things like independence, what happens if the Taiwanese people were to come out and say, as a democracy, we support our independence from China? I guess maybe China views the um, self-determination of the Taiwanese people voting in these elections as little more serious than you voting for your student council in high school. (laughs) Like, we'll let you do this. The, the, The government of the United States lets us do that in high school. But functionally speaking, it doesn't really mean anything outside of that specific context. So I imagine that in the case of a referendum voting for independence, China would absolutely not recognize it. But Mm. there are other movements globally that are succession movements or devolution movements, which also go under the same sort of process with referendums, Um, like the Scottish uh, question, the Scottish question, Mm -hmm. um, which currently does not seem to have quite enough popular support to win a referendum. But the question keeps getting revisited if Scotland should no longer be part of the United Kingdom or Great Britain or whichever country England owns. Yeah, the uh, I remember the Scottish referendum pre-Brexit had 55-ish percent of voters saying, let's stay in the United Kingdom. But Scotland was very opposed to Brexit. So then when the United Kingdom voted to secede, I suppose, from the EU, um, there's definitely calls in Scotland for a second referendum. And who knows? how that would influence it. Or even in the United States, you know, what if Californians or or Texans on the other side of the political spectrum, depending on who's president, what if they voted to secede from the union? Would you would the United States respect that? Or, you know, would the United Kingdom respect Scottish independence? It, well, the U.S. historically does not treat succession movements very kindly. No, <laughs> we take away their historical flags. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and their statues. Don't forget mm-hmm. the statues. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you know, if the if the United States, if the United States were to not accept a secessionist vote for California per se, or the United Kingdom were not to accept a secessionist vote from Scotland, why should China have to accept a secessionist vote from Taiwan were it to happen? I guess there's no legal pressure that forces China to do it. And that's really where the international relations disputes and all the specific players come in, come into focus. But there is one other criteria for statehood that I think is probably even more central to this entire question for Taiwan. And that is the ability to form relationships, which you already discussed, Josh. They really don't have the legal ability to, to have official relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's where we get weird documents like we mentioned earlier where the United States assigns a document with China, mainland China, the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. But really, it seems like the act is is speaking to Taiwan, but not allowed to speak directly to Taiwan. It's kind of like when a, when a couple gets in a fight 
and it's like, can you tell Kelly that I said that I'm mad at her and somebody has to go in between the two because we're not, we have to pretend that each other doesn't exist. It's sort of, it's sort of like that. I didn't know you were eavesdropping on that one horrifying part of my last relationship. So that's (laughs) disconcerting. All right. Well, (laughs) I I hope your future (laughs) relationships are, are healthier than China and Taiwan's relationship. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) we have, we have diplomatic relations, but then we also have trade relations, which might be even more salient to Taiwan and the United States and, and countries around the world are not able to recognize them again. Officially, they do have trade agreements, including most interestingly, uh, for weapons, which we'll talk about later, but maybe second most interestingly, is a semiconductor trade. And this might seem like a minor detail in a debate over independence and in countries in World War III, uh, but <laughs> these are these are literally seven nanometers large, but could crash the entire global economy. So these semiconductors are actually a huge deal. Um, there's only three companies in the world capable of producing them. Uh, one is Intel in the United States, one is Samsung in South Korea, and then by far the biggest is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, uh, which is an incredibly creative name, the TSMC. And what these semiconductors are used in is they're used in things like artificial intelligence, they're used for 5G, they're used for cloud computing, and they are purchased by over 500 companies around the world. Companies like Apple, who puts them in their iPhones, iPads, watches, potentially Apple cars coming up. Um, it's used by companies like NVIDIA, Qualcomm, AMD, and MediaTek. And if we're not actually having a test on all of this material, I would like to pause and let everybody with a bingo card for acronyms check and see how they're doing because we've hit <laughs> like 30 in this episode already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so in this, in this semiconductor I- issue... The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company has opened up recently a $12 billion manufacturing facility in Arizona. And the idea of a Taiwanese company helping the United States shore up its chip making capabilities is certainly not making mainland China very happy. And there's fear that it could retaliate by potentially nationalizing manufacturing plants in mainland China in cities like Nanjing or Shanghai. And Instability in this area, like I mentioned earlier, could have massive global economic repercussions. It affects phone industry, it affects the car industry, it affects computer industries in a, in a huge way. And, you know, so the point of all this underneath this fourth stipulation of the Montevideo Convention is the ability to form relationships. Certainly, having the ability to operate independently from China would be a huge plus for Taiwan. Um, not just politically, but also economically. It's interesting to think about their inability to form relationships is because of the control that mainland China has over them, not because of any functional inability with their own domestic government or economic structures or anything like that. Without China's pressure, they would otherwise have all of these abilities that they currently can't access. So Mm. does that necessarily mean that they're disqualified from being a state because another country is forcing them into the situation? Right. It's like artificially eliminating the the qualifications necessary to be a legitimate state. Right. So, I mean, at the end of all that, it seems like, well, Taiwan checks all of the boxes. So obviously they want to be a state. They've expressed this through the polling. They have the capacity to be a state. So Obviously, they should be. 
Well, maybe, (laughs) but there are some compelling reasons to consider that perhaps Taiwanese independence isn't necessary or good, or I mean, we already know it's probably not realistic, but Mm -hmm. um, one of the big things to consider is Taiwan, as it operates right now, is doing very well for itself. And is this a really big fight, a potentially dangerous fight over a kind of small legal distinction when it concerns their relationship with China? So if this is just about the actual status of being legally considered a state, is that alone worth it uh, for Taiwan? Like looking at how it is to be a person who lives in Taiwan and how Taiwan functions uh, Taiwan citizens are enfranchised and have a really great human rights score and otherwise are living a higher quality of life than people in mainland China are in a lot of circumstances. China has significantly worse human rights scores overall. They're um, not great on the democracy factor. They're not great on the not having a genocide factor. So ultimately, China is not letting Taiwan be a country, but they're not really having any effect on Taiwan's operations within their area that adversely affects the way that the people of Taiwan get to like live and experience their own rights. Is there an acronym for the not having a genocide factor? (laughs) (laughs) But I think that there's also another area of kind of evaluating Taiwan's potential statehood. And that's about whether or not other countries recognize the right to that state's existence. And a lot of countries that we consider to be actual states don't have universal recognition from all of the other players in the the global arena. So take, for instance, Israel, which we're coming at it from an American perspective, and especially how America aligns itself with Israel. We have known it as a state basically since it was formed. Since we made it. Since we made it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) awkward, (laughs) but yeah. Um, But 28 other members of the United Nations don't recognize Israel as a state yet. We all like operate with it as a trading partner and a political ally and things like that. None of the 28 members who don't recognize Israel are China. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of like the big thing here. I also think it's interesting about the staunch objections of like one or two countries in particular, like South Korea, all of the UN recognizes that it is a country except for one country. And um, <laughs> you can't guess which country that is. Um, does it, does it share 50% of the name with South Korea? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And a border um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and a peninsula. Um, and then North Korea, which if you couldn't tell was the other country we're talking about um, North Korea, uh, only 15 members don't recognize it as a country, which is kind of interesting. Well, but, you can be a you can be a a nutty country and still be a country. We're like, we we know you're real. You're just a little bit bonkers. If places like China let you be a country, mm-hmm. that's or, the, big or thing the United here. or the United States. I mean, to right. go back to the Israel example, all of the countries that have um, the status and power of you know China. United States, likely also Russia and Great Britain are kind of the biggest players that determine whether or not a state gets to be a state. And if one of those countries is a holdout, like China is for Taiwan, that obliterates any of the international community being able to formally recognize them. 
And, and I mean, since we're speaking of Israel and secession, I, I think that the Palestinian region might be another interesting example people could look to that, that is roughly comparable to the situation. Absolutely. And that's also an area that is not recognized by most mm. of the international community as a state because the other side of the conflict being Israel and Israel having the firm backing of the United States, that kind of draws the line for the rest of the world. So I guess we've established that Taiwan, at least in principle, would like to be independent, but realizing the reality of the situation is unlikely to push for it. And so um, a massive majority of the country is just happy maintaining the status quo. And I think that the recent news and the reason we're doing this episode gives a pretty clear picture of why that might be their sentiment. Just recently, in early October, China mounted four consecutive days of mass air force incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. So what that means is 150 Chinese planes crossed over into this air defense identification zone in a pattern that Taipei, the capital of Taiwan, viewed as, quote, stepped up military harassment by Beijing. So certainly an aggressive move. Um, No shots were fired, and China's aircraft stayed away from Taiwan's official airspace. Uh, Instead, they concentrated their activity in the southwestern corner of this air defense zone. So really, again, ambiguous, flying planes close, but not too close. So to say, hey, we're here, but we're not actually going to do anything yet. This sounds like a lot of the other ways that China has postured in Taiwan's airspace. So is this really that much of an escalation? It didn't really result in actual open aggression. Mm-hmm. Well, it, there have been, it's a multitude of factors. It's not just this one action. And, and to be fair, tai, Taiwan has come out and, and at least made some statements that were a bit provocative also. So for example, Taiwan's defense minister said, what is clearest is that the Republic of China, again, that's Taiwan, absolutely will not start or set off a war, but if there are movements, we will meet the enemy full on. So he said this in a a parliament committee meeting, he used Taiwan's official name, which is really just meant to irritate mainland China, And I think what's most interesting about that quote is he explicitly calls China the enemy, which at least rhetorically is a a bit of an incursion. Very strong. I won't start the fight, but I'm sure going to finish it vibes. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, and so these 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 tensions have been rising and, you know, the same defense minister has identified them as being the worst that they have been in over 40 years and he's added that China will be capable, he believes, of mounting a full-scale invasion by 2025, which is, you know, kind of what we said at the beginning of the episode, where a U.S. national security advisor sees China attacking Taiwan by 2024. So there are there are people in high positions who are at least saying that the possibility that China takes an action to stop any independence efforts are very real and something that we need to be very worried about. On the flip side of this, China had said that its military actions are, quote, a just move to protect peace and stability. And they've blamed Taiwan's collusion with foreign forces, uh, meaning not so subtly the United States, for sowing the tension. Just recently, President Biden made a couple of comments that certainly didn't help. And I think that with things escalating, we, 
being the United States and the world in general, certainly need to be very careful about how we interact or, or even just how we talk about Taiwan. You think Joe Biden is capable of being careful? <laughs> I mean, if he if he reads the script, he's fine. I think he's probably if he sticks to the script, I think he's probably safer than Trump. But, but both of them go off the script, I think, for different reasons. Yeah, I think that Joe Biden is like, I'm going to show up to negotiations in a Camaro. <laughs> and I, I don't know what I'm talking about right now, but he's not malicious. Come on, guys. It's like that episode of a uh, family guy shows up to China. Come on. <laughs> Come on. You and I have pop culture <laughs> like misses all, all the time with each other. I have no idea what you're talking about. Whatever. Like hopefully half of our half of our audience will get what I'm saying. Half <laughs> will get what you're saying. And then we're all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so speaking of uh, the Biden administration, just recently, there was a bit of a, a, a kerfuffle, if you'd like, where there was a tweet. And this tweet was about COVID-19 donations that the United States had made to, to various countries and or region around the world. And in this tweet, this list of countries, they included Taiwan and a picture, like a tiny icon of Taiwan's flag. And that's actually a big no-no because China thinks that that flag is imaginary and gets pretty upset when it is, you know, because that would be considered officially recognizing Taiwan as a country if they have their own flag. And so this tweet actually got deleted pretty immediately afterwards. And a uh, National Security Council spokesperson had to come out and, and give a statement saying that the United States remains committed to our one China policy and that our policy has been clear for decades and has not changed. And we'll talk a bit more about the wording of that policy. But the the point is, literally a tweet about COVID vaccine distribution almost sparked an international incident. Whatever intern was in charge of social media (laughs) and didn't get their tweet proofread by a manager must have lost all their college credit that term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this, I think, I think this brings us to the, maybe the most practical question of the episode, which is, um, as we outlined in the beginning, let's assume that Taiwan wants independence. Let's assume that they do something about it. Let's assume that China reacts aggressively. And it's a lot of assumptions, but it's important to note that this would be the worst possible outcome. So I think it's important for us to at least think about it and and prepare for this as a as a potential outcome. So if all that comes to pass, what does the rest of the world and in particular what does the United States do about it? And I think that the the first thing to note here is what we've been saying the entire episode is that we just hope that we're able to maintain this sort of strategic ambiguity of the status quo on all sides where Taiwan says we'd probably like to be independent but we're not going to push for it. The United States is like we're not going to say you're real, but we're going to trade with you. And China keeps being angry. <laughs> and we all say, yeah, that's that's fine. You can be angry as long as you don't do anything about it. And in an effort to maintain that strategic ambiguity, we mentioned before the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. And this is what's interesting about the quote from that spokesperson, the NSC spokesperson, where he says that the United States remains committed to our one China policy. What the one China policy is officially is codified inside of the Taiwan Relations Act. And in that, the United States, quote, acknowledges the position that there is one China and that Taiwan is a part of it, end quote. What's important there is the word acknowledges. Acknowledges does not mean agree with. 
acknowledges is just like, yeah, we, we understand China that that's your position. We understand that that's what you're saying. We hear you. I'm sorry that you're offended. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So it rings a little hollow. <laughs> yeah, we acknowledge the position that there is one China and that Taiwan is part of it. Now, in a separate part of that document, they also write that they accept that there is a sole legal government of China. So they do recognize that there is one legal government of the country of China. But what's interesting here is besides acknowledging that China believes that Taiwan is part of China, the United States has never said that they believe Taiwan is officially a part of China. So recognizing that there is a sole legal government of China does not answer the question of whether or not that government has jurisdiction over the region of Taiwan. So this, this whole ambiguity is literally codified and made official in the documents that we have that provide the legal framework for how we're going to deal with this situation. This is so convoluted because the U.S. is deliberately refusing to pick a side, Mm -hmm. ultimately, so as not to anger China, but also so that they can still have some sort of acknowledgement that Taiwan deserves not to be bombed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, I think that's important to recognize that strategic ambiguity, while kind of like frustrating to think about in concept, it actually is effective for this particular situation. So it kind of operates like mutually assured destruction in that, yeah, someone can act, someone can either bomb the island or declare full independence from the mainland. But once that happens, you're in a really dire situation because then it's, you know, open season for weapons and aggression and war and all of that stuff. What works about this with the U.S. as a partner for both of these areas is that Taiwan is not sure that the U.S. will defend it if they were to declare independence, which is one of the reasons that they don't probably feel emboldened emboldened enough to actually declare independence. But China, mainland China, is also not sure that the U.S. won't defend Taiwan. So that's a reason that they basically just skirt the airspace once in a while, but don't actually like fire upon Taiwan. No one actually wants to test the commitment of the U.S. to engage militaristically with protecting Taiwan or perhaps they're not going to get involved if something happens and then Taiwan doesn't want to risk, you know, angering, angering China and then seeing what happens with their weapons. Yeah, I think the cost benefit analysis here is pretty clear. It's it's on Taiwan's side, besides the label of being an independent country, like what do we really have to gain from our independent status? Some bilateral political agreements, like what can we get out of that? or maybe some some more freedom in terms of our ability to trade. Um, but if it's about trading, it's literally about money. And how, how much money would you make from having that extra bit of freedom versus how much money will you lose when you know you you enter into a war with with mainland China? Seems like a pretty easy decision there. And it's not just the United States that I think has maintained this um, strategic ambiguity. The United Nations and the and the world in general, um, Taiwan has applied for admission to the United Nations 15 times, and it's been rejected all 15 times. And China being part of the Security Council makes that kind of a fool's errand. There's really no chance that it's ever going to pass. But the fact that they keep attempting it, you know, again, just political posturing, I suppose. And China refuses diplomatic relations. Not, not Not only are they not allowing 
Taiwan admission to the United Nations. They also refuse diplomatic relations with any country that recognizes the Republic of China, that recognizes Taiwan as a country. So um, there, we mentioned there are, I think, 15 countries that do recognize Taiwan, and China doesn't think that any of them are real. Applications for admission to the United Nations a few times would be understandable, but 15 times is kind of wild. It's... <laughs> Can Taiwan not take a hint? <laughs> mm, well, I mean, and then and then every you know they apply to the United Nations. China flies some bombers into their airspace, you know, back and forth, just uh, ambiguous but but tense, um, and just maintaining that that situation. So, all right, but but to be fair, I don't think that our answer to what are we going to do about this can just be hope that this doesn't become a real thing. So the question is, what do we do if China does not allow us to stay strategically ambiguous? What if China takes that next step and physically maintains its control over Taiwan? Yeah, this is incredibly important because China right now has a position where it needs to reassert and reinforce its power because this isn't the only issue of areas within its territories, as it considers them, where there are people who are upset, have separatist mindsets, talking about places like Tibet, talking about places like Hong Kong, areas which are a little bit of a different status than all of mainland China operates. And if it comes to it, and there is an actual escalation of tensions, China will likely become aggressive in terms of actual military instruments. Because if they let Taiwan go, if they don't put up a fight towards keeping Taiwan, that is going to embolden a lot of the other areas that are currently also having issues being parts of China proper. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the first of the dominoes effect. Right. And they also have a global perception that they need to maintain that they are a strong military power. There are other areas in which their dominance is currently becoming more known. They have a presence in the South China Sea, of course, but also in other countries like um, some of the countries in Africa that are resource rich, they have a strong global presence. So any, any display of potential weakness can really destroy a lot of the reputation that they built as being a dominant global player. So it's very likely that China could get to a point where they're actually firing upon Taiwan in order to keep Taiwan under their legal control. Mm, it's, it's literally just an international game of chicken, right? You get closer and closer and closer and you hope that somebody turns away at the last minute, but you, you know you don't want it to be yourself. And this is where I think the escalation of flying these bombers and and various aircraft into that that gray space, uh, the gray airspace, is an indication that maybe this game of chicken is getting closer and closer to a, a potential collision. So if China basically forces the U.S. to take a position by becoming actively aggressive with Taiwan, not just flying planes, but actively firing missiles or doing other military activities... What are the arguments for the United States to actively defend Taiwan against Chinese aggression? Well, first, I think that that one of the questions is, is it realistic to think that the U.S. would uphold some of these implications that they would defend? And there's definitely arguments that they would. Um, the the president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, came out recently and, and admitted for the first time 
that we have a wide, quote, range of cooperation with the United States aiming at increasing our defense capabilities. And she just recently confirmed that there are U.S. Army Special Forces in Taiwan training Taiwanese soldiers, which was speculated to be the case, but had not been officially confirmed and then recently was. And also there is a new proposed $750 million weapon sale from the United States to Taiwan. And then this is one of one of many billion dollar sized weapon sales that, that we have made to Taiwan. Um, mm-hmm. uh, all of these weapons are defensive in, in nature. None of them have offensive capabilities. So it's not like Taiwan's going to be trying to invade China, but um, still some pretty advanced weaponry to sort of fend off any potential attacks. And, and all of this support is coming from the United States. So there still is a possibility that the United States might stay impartial if there is open aggression between China and Taiwan, but it's actually incredibly unlikely that they would be impartial because not taking a side, compromising on this issue essentially defaults the legitimacy of China, mainland China, over the less powerful Taiwan. So essentially not taking a stance empowers the aggressor in this situation. In this instance, because of how important a player Taiwan is, I think it's very likely that the United States would come to its defense should there be open Chinese aggression. But there's mm-hmm. also the possibility that the United States would treat this conflict perhaps like other issues that happen within China where the U.S. has some sort of moral and legal obligation to act. For instance, the United States has not stepped in for China's genocide over ethnic Uyghurs in Western provinces, but also the Uyghurs don't make semiconductors. Yeah. And yeah, and that, that might be what makes this unique as compared to some other situations where we have to choose between group slash region X and China. There are very few players on the international stage that we have um, as much of a reliance on as China economically but Taiwan might be one of them. Um, maybe not in terms of scale of economic trade, but again, those uh, it's it's hard to understate the importance of this semiconductor industry and how reliant some of the biggest industries in the world are on it. So you know, there's a there's a reason where we have we have troops training Taiwanese soldiers. We have troops on the ground training Taiwanese soldiers, and we do have this arms deal with Taiwan. And I can't think of any other group that we would be willing to take those steps with, knowing how angry it would make Beijing. Yeah, I think it's really clear that the United States is not going to do anything to assist another country that does not also tie back to some sort of interest that the United States has. Like we espouse human rights all the time, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really about like what resources do those humans live on (laughs) Mm. Um, when we do things like bring democracy to people and things like that. We don't have a really great track record of um, altruism. Mm -hmm, (laughs) So so we'd have to see what they actually do. But I can't imagine they would do anything that would compromise their interests and access to this technology. Well, we brought freedom and democracy to the people of Iraq. And obviously that was altruistic. There was no ulterior motive for that. So I don't know what you're talking about, Kelly. Do you want to hear my most offensive Halloween costume ever? 
Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. I painted one of my fingers purple and I went as an Iraqi voter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> is that offensive? <laughs> no. Or is it like pro-democracy? I don't know. I've, I've certainly heard of more offensive Halloween costumes than that. <laughs> well, sure. But I mean, also me, I try to be a good person. Um, mm, um, I'm a vegan, Josh. So, oh my gosh. I had hamburgers again today. Oh my no! God. No, I really did. I'm okay. But I already have them in my freezer. So, you know, they're, they're dead either way and not eating them would be a waste, uh, which is also immoral. That's so, a sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> speaking of, um, speaking of human rights, I think that's an interesting analogy to how this might potentially play out. Like if we were to, you know, sort of theorize on potential scenarios and uh, the, the United Nations peacekeepers might be analogous here where they act as basically human shields to a population that they're defending. Um, they're not allowed to fire aggressively upon anybody but if they're fired upon, they're allowed to defend themselves. And it'd be, uh, to me, that would be the most realistic stance here is, is China makes some sort of incursion towards Taiwan, the United States places, whether it's um, the Navy or troops in Taiwan and strategic locations, and basically says, China, there is, you, you might attack Taiwan, but there is no way, like, we dare you to call our bluff. There's no way you would attack an American ship or an American soldier. So literally the U.S. Army serves as a human shield to Taiwan. And China says, all right, we got our point across. We took this game of chicken to the absolute brink. Taiwan, you need to fall in line. But we'll end it here. To, to me, that's the, if we get to this point, that's the most realistic scenario. Or does the, or does the U.S., like, or am I, am I wrong? Or does the U.S. just say, nope. Sorry, they called our bluff. Sorry, Taiwan, we're out. Good luck. It's really hard to know. It's it's really hard to know because I think it's going to depend on the specific economic relationship that the U.S. has with each of these entities at the time whenever anything boils over. Mm. And so as soon as they build that microchip factory in the United States, we don't need them anymore. We're good. Semiconductor, Honestly, not microchip. Sorry, we're not tech people. I don't know what the difference is. And honestly, um, that might be, oh, go ahead. Tell me what am I? One is, one is micro. Okay. Right. And, and one, one is, is semi. Like semi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. There are probably the people who work in the tech industry listening to us right now and want us both dead. Mm. So we'll, when we do an episode on technology, we'll research it. But for right now, the point is there's these little things that make my phone go and Taiwan makes them. Um, so man, I guess, I guess the end of the episode is, you know, this, this game of chicken has moved one step for, forward, which is kind of forcing this conversation for us. And, you know, that's why we wanted to talk about this particular issue, because uh, as we get closer and closer to this potentiality, kind of running through these various scenarios and, and not just what would we do, but why would we What's the right path to take for all players involved? What's the right path forward principally for the people of Taiwan? And it seems so far that what's right for them principally is different than what's right for them practically. Um, what's right for the for mainland China? You know, do they have a claim on this region? You know, do they have the right to just maintain their hold on it? They're certainly asserting that right. And so far, everybody's respecting it. And then 
what's right for the rest of the world, what's right for the United States and what's right for the UN, which has thus far been this idea of strategic ambiguity, sort of just leave it where it's at. Taiwan doesn't feel certain enough to push for independence. China doesn't feel certain enough to forcibly remove that hope for independence. And so we're all just going to kind of maintain the status quo. Is this the part where I get to talk about my radical ideology? Yeah, sure. I can edit it out if you get a little crazy. No, no, no. It's okay. I already have come to come to terms with never being able to run for office. So it's fine. Um, so were these concerns not actually coming to fruition? Were there no actual threat from China in a perfect world for me? One thing I don't believe in is the concept of a nation state. I think that we should be a borderless world. And there should be no such thing as citizenship. We're all global citizens. You're edited out. You're edited out. No, come on. This is like, (laughs) this is like, I really care about all people equally, but there are artificial distinctions because of geography that make it so that people all over the world are shit on because they weren't born in a specific place. And that's actually, uh, I think uh, you're referring to, there's a theory behind it called the lottery of birth. That might be an interesting episode for us. So not to interrupt you, but to point out to our listeners, we are on Twitter and Facebook at Indubitably Pod in both places. And if you'd like to hear any specific discussion, one of which might be the lottery of birth, which Kelly is about to continue talking about, that would be a good place to let us know. We definitely read and take suggestions on potential episode ideas. I cannot believe you interrupted my leftist screed with promotional <laughs> items. Only because, only because I thought it's a really cool idea and there might be people who would like to let us know that they want to hear more beyond this particular rant that you're about to continue right now. I'm actually not going to continue it much further. I think we all know where I stand on, on that particular issue, but taking it more in line with how the world actually operates. I personally believe that Taiwan should legitimately be considered a state. I think that they would benefit greatly from being able to engage in relationships and have like preferential trade agreements on those semiconductors and be able to trade with China without any like threat of hostility, um, enter into economic trade zones in, in the region. Everything would benefit everybody if they had full statehood. If we do agree that statehood is a legitimate thing for any territory to have, <laughs> uh, that's up for debate. And maybe on a future podcast, I sound like you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but realistically speaking, with how these these actors behave and the ideologies tied to them. China has a very big sense of pride over whether or not Taiwan is theirs. So ultimately, I think the best we can hope for is a maintenance of the status quo. I think it's the least violent option out of all of the things that could realistically happen with all of these players. Hmm. Well, I guess hopefully this issue simmers back down again and we don't hear about it for another decade or so. But if we do, you can hear about it back here at Indubitably. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.